0: Section 18 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5 by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 18. Knights of Industry by Vesivalid Vladimirovich Krestovsky, Part 3 7. Beyond the Frontier On the morning of that same day, at 9 o'clock, a well-dressed lady presented at the Bank of Commerce a number of unsigned bank shares. At the same time, a young man, also elegantly dressed, presented a series of signed shares, made out in the name of Princess Anna Chechevinsky. They were properly endorsed, the signature corresponding to that in the bank books. After a short interval the cashier of the bank paid over to the well-dressed lady a hundred and fifty thousand rubles in bills, and to the elegantly dressed young man seventy thousand rubles. The lady signed her receipt in French, Teresa Doré. The young man signed his name, even a son of a merchant of Kostroma. A little later on the same day, namely about two o'clock, a light carriage carried two passengers along the Pargaloff Road, a quietly dressed young woman and a quietly dressed young man. Toward evening, these same young people were traveling in a Finnish coach by the stony mountain road in the direction of Abo. Four days later, the old princess Chechevinsky was buried, in the Nevsky Monastery. On his return from the monastery, young Prince Chechevinsky went straight for the strong box, which he had hitherto seen only at a distance, and even then only rarely. He expected to find a great deal more money in it than he found, some hundred and fifty thousand rubles, a hundred thousand in his late mother's name, and fifty thousand in his own. This was the personal property of the old princess, A part of her dowry. The young prince made a wry face. The money might last him two or three years, not more. During the lifetime of the old princess, no one had known accurately how much she possessed, so that it never even entered the young prince's head to ask whether she had not had more. He was so unmethodical that he never even looked into her account book, deciding that it was uninteresting and not worthwhile. That same day, the janitor of one of the huge, dirty tenements of the Vasninesky prospect brought to the police office notice of the fact that the pole, Kazimir Bodlevsky, had left the city, and the housekeeper of the late Princess Chechevinsky informed the police that the serf girl, Natalia Pavlovna, Natasha, had disappeared without leaving a trace, which the housekeeper now announced, as the three days' limit had elapsed. At that same hour, the little ship of a certain Finnish captain was gliding down the gulf of Bothnia. The Finn stood at the helm, and his young son handled the sails. On the deck sat a young man and a young woman. The young woman carried, in a little bag hung round her neck, two hundred and forty-four thousand roubles in bills, and she and her companion carried pistols in their pockets, for use in case of need. Their passports declared that the young woman belonged to the noble class, and was the widow of a college assessor, her name being Maria Solensiva, while the young man was a Pole, Kasmir Bodlevski. The little ship was crossing the Gulf of Bothnia, toward the coast of Sweden. 8. Back to Russia In the year 1858, in the month of September, the report of the St. Petersburg City Police among the names of arrivals, included the following. Baroness von Doring, Hanoverian subject, Ian Vladislav Karazich, Austrian subject. The persons above described might have been recognized among the fashionable crowds which thronged the St. Petersburg terminus of the Warsaw Railway a few days before. A lady who looked not more than thirty, though she was really thirty-eight, dressed with simple elegance, tall and slender, admirably developed, with beautifully clear complexion, piercing intelligent gray eyes, under finely outlined brows, thick chestnut hair, and a firm mouth, almost a beauty, and with an expression of power, subtlety, and decision. She is either a queen or a criminal, a physiognomist would have said after observing her face. A gentleman with a red beard, whom the lady addressed as brother, not less elegantly dressed, and with the same expression of subtlety and decision. They left the station in a hired carriage, and drove to Dumuz Hotel. Before narrating the adventures of these distinguished persons, let us go back twenty years, and ask what became of Natasha and Budlevsky. When we last saw them, the ship that carried them away from Russia was gliding across the Gulf of Bothnia, toward the Swedish coast. Late in the evening it slipped into the port of Stockholm, and the worthy Finn, winding in and out among the heavy holes in the harbor—he was well used to the job—landed his passengers on the wharf at a lonely spot near a lonely inn, where the customs officers rarely showed their noses. Bodlevski, who had beforehand got ready the very modest sum to pay for their passage, with pitiable looks and gestures, and the few Russian phrases the good Finn could understand, assured him that he was a very poor man, and could not even pay the sum agreed on in full. The deficit was inconsiderable, some two rubles in all, and the good Finn was magnanimous. He slapped his passenger on the shoulder, called him a good comrade, declared that he would not press a poor man, and would always be ready to do him a service. He even found quarters for Bodlevsky and Natasha in the inn, under his protection. The finn was indeed a very honest smuggler. On the next morning, bidding a final farewell to their nautical friend, our couple made their way to the office of the British consul, and asked for an opportunity to speak with him. At this point Natasha played the principal role. "'My husband is a Pole,' said the handsome girl, taking a seat opposite the consul in his private office. "'And I myself am Russian on the father's side,' but my mother was English. My husband is involved in a political enterprise. He was liable to transportation to Siberia, but a chance made it possible for us to escape while the police were on their way to arrest him. We are now political fugitives, and we entrust our lives to the protection of English law. Be generous, protect us, and send us to England. The ruse, skillfully planned and admirably presented, was completely successful and two or three days later, the first passenger ship under the English flag carried the happy couple to London. Budlovsky destroyed his own passport, and that of the college assessor's widow, Maria Solonciva, which Natasha had needed, as a precaution, while still on Russian soil. When they got to England, it would be much handier to take new names, but with their new position, and these new names, a great difficulty presented itself, they could find no suitable outlet for their capital, without arousing very dangerous suspicions. The many-sided art of the London rogues is known to all the world. In their club, Butlevsky, who had lost no time in making certain pleasant and indispensable acquaintances there, soon succeeded in getting for himself and Natasha admirably counterfeited new passports, once more with new names and occupations. With these, in a short time, they found their way to the continent. They both felt the full force of youth, and a passionate desire to live and enjoy life. In their hot heads hummed many a golden hope and plan. They wished, to begin with, to invest their main capital somewhere, and then to travel over Europe, and to choose a quiet corner somewhere, where they could settle down to a happy life. Perhaps all this might have happened if it had not been for cards and roulette, and the perpetual desire of increasing their capital, for the worthy couple fell into the hands of a talented company, whose agents robbed them at Frascati's in Paris, and again in Hamburg, and various health resorts, so that hardly a year had passed, when Bodlevsky, one fine night, woke up to the fact that they no longer possessed a ruble. But they had passed a brilliant year. Their arrival in the great cities had had its effect." and especially since natasha had become a person of title in the course of the year she succeeded in purchasing an austrian barony at a very reasonable figure a barony which of course only existed on paper when all his money was gone there was nothing left for bodlevsky but to enroll himself a member of the company which had so successfully accomplished the transfer of his funds to their own pockets natasha's beauty in bodlevsky's brains were such strong arguments that the company willingly accepted them as new recruits. The two paid dear for their knowledge, it is true, but their knowledge presently began to bear fruit in considerable abundance. Day followed day, and year succeeded year. A long series of horribly anxious nights, violent feelings, mental perturbations, crafty and subtle schemes, a complete cycle of rascalities, an entire science of covering up tracks, and the perpetual shadow of justice, prison, and perhaps the scaffold. Podlovsky, with his obstinate, persistent, and concentrated character, reached the highest skill in card-sharping and the allied wiles. All games of chance were, for him, games of skill. At thirty he looked at least ten years older. The life he led, with its ceaseless effort, endless mental work, perpetual anxiety, had made of him a fanatical worshipper at the Shrine of Trickery. He dried up visibly in body and grew old in mind, mastering all the difficult arts of his profession, and only gained confidence and serenity when he had reached the highest possible skill in every branch of his work. From that moment he took a new lease of life. He grew younger, he became gay and self-confident, his health even visibly improved, and he assumed the air and manner of a perfect gentleman. As for Natasha, her life and efforts in concert with Bodlevsky by no means had the same wearing effect on her as on him. Her proud, decided nature received all these impressions quite differently. She continued to blossom out, to grow handsomer, to enjoy life, to take hearts captive. All the events which aroused so keen a mental struggle in her companion she met with entire equanimity. The reason was this. When she made up her mind to anything, she always decided at once, and with an unusual completeness. A very short time was given to keen and accurate consideration, a rapid weighing of the gains and losses of the matter in hand, and then she went forward coldly and unswervingly on her chosen path. Her first aim in life had been revenge, then a brilliant and luxurious life, and she knew that they would cost dear. Therefore, once embarked on her undertaking, Natasha remained calm and indifferent, brilliantly distinguished, and ensnaring the just and the unjust alike. Her intellect, education, skill, resource, and innate tact made it possible for her everywhere to gain a footing in select aristocratic society, and to play by no means the least role there. Many beauties envied her, detested her, spoke evil of her, and yet sought her friendship, because she almost always queened it in society. Her friendship and sympathy always seemed so cordial, so sincere and tender, and her epigrams were so pointed and poisonous, that every hostile criticism seemed to shrivel up in that glittering fire, and there seemed to be nothing left but to seek her friendship and goodwill. For instance, if things went well in Baden, one could confidently foretell— that at the end of the summer season natasha would be found in nice or geneva queen of the winter season the lioness of the day and the arbiter of fashion she and podlewski always behaved with such propriety and watchful care that not a shadow ever fell on natasha's fame it is true that podlewski had to change his name once or twice and to seek a new field for his talents and to make sudden excursions to distant corners of europe sometimes in pursuit of a promising job, sometimes to evade the too persistent attentions of the police. So far everything had turned out favorably, and his name had remained unstained, when suddenly a slight mishap befell. The matter was a trifling one, but the misfortune was that it happened in Paris. There was a chance that it might find issue in the courts and the hulks, so that there ensued a more than ordinarily rapid change of passports, and a new excursion. This time to Russia, back to their native land again, after an absence of twenty years. Thus it happened that the papers announced the arrival in St. Petersburg of Baroness von Doring and Ian Vladislav Karozich. Nine. The concert of the powers. A few days after, there was a brilliant reunion at Princess Shadursky's. All the beauty and fashion of St. Petersburg were invited. And few who were invited failed to come. It happened that Prince Shadursky was an admirer of the fair sex, and also that he had the pleasure of meeting the brilliant Baroness von Doring at Hamburg and again in Paris. It was therefore to be expected that Baroness von Doring should be found in the midst of an admiring throng at Princess Shadursky's reception. Her brother Ian Karazitch was also there, suave, alert, dignified. Losing no opportunity to make friends with the distinguished company that thronged the prince's rooms. Late in the evening, the baroness and her brother might have been seen engaged in a tete a tete seated in two comfortable armchairs, and anyone who was near enough might have heard the following conversation How goes it? Karazitch asked in a low tone. As you see, I am making a hit, answered the baroness in the same quiet tone but her manner was so detached and indifferent, that no one could have guessed her remark was of the least significance. It should be noted that this was her first official presentation to St. Petersburg society, and in truth her beauty, united with her lively intellect, her amiability, and her perfect taste in dress, had produced a general and even remarkable effect. People talked about her and became interested in her, and her first evening won her several admirers among those well-placed in society. "'I have been paying attention to the solid capitalists,' replied Karazic. "'We have made our debut in the role of practical actors. Well, what about him?' He continued, indicating Prince Shadursky with his eyes. "'In the web,' she replied with a subtle smile. "'Then can we soon suck his brains?' "'Soon,' "'but he must be tied tighter first. "'But we must not talk here.' "'A moment later Carazage and the Baroness "'were in the midst of the brilliant groups of guests. "'A few latecomers were still arriving. "'Count Kalash,' announced the footman, "'who stood at the chief entrance to the large hall. "'At this new and almost unknown but high-sounding name "'many eyes were turned toward the door "'through which the newcomer must enter.' A hum of talk spread among the guests. "'Count Kalash? "'Who is he?' "'It is a Hungarian name. "'I think I heard of him somewhere. "'Is this his first appearance?' "'Who is this Count Kalash? "'Oh, yes, one of the old Hungarian families. "'How interesting!' Such questions and answers crossed each other in a running fire among the various groups of guests who filled the hall, when a young man appeared in the doorway." He lingered a moment, to glance round the room and the company, then, as if conscience of the remarks and glances directed toward him, but completely ignoring them, and without the least shyness or awkwardness, he walked quietly through the hall, to the host and hostess of the evening. People of experience, accustomed to society and the ways of the great world, can often decide from the first minute the role which any one is likely to play among them. People of experience, at the first view of this young man, at his first entrance, merely by the way he entered the hall, decided that his role in society would be brilliant, that more than one feminine heart would beat faster for his presence, that more than one dandy's wrath would be kindled by his successes. "'How handsome he is!' a whisper went round among the ladies. The men for the most part remained silent. A few twisted the ends of their moustache, and made as though they had not noticed him. This was already enough to foreshadow a brilliant career. And, indeed, Count Collage could not have passed unnoticed, even among a thousand young men of his class. Tall and vigorous, wonderfully well-proportioned, he challenged comparison with antennas. His pale face, tanned by the sun, had an expression almost of weariness. His high forehead, with clustering black hair and sharply marked brows, bore the impress of passionate feeling and turbulent thought strongly repressed. It was difficult to define the color of his deep-set, somewhat sunken eyes, which now flashed with southern fire, and now were veiled, so that one seemed to be looking into an abyss. A slight mustache and pointed beard partly concealed the ironical smile that played on his passionate lips. The natural grace of good manners and quiet, but admirably cut clothes, completed the young man's exterior, behind which, in spite of all his reticence, could be divined a haughty and exceptional nature. A more profound psychologist would have seen in him an obstinately passionate, ungrateful nature, which takes from others everything it desires, demanding it from them as a right, and without even a nod of acknowledgment. Such was Count Nicholas Kalash." A few days after the reception at Prince Shattersky's, Baroness von Doring was installed in a handsome apartment on Makovoy Street, at which her brother, in Karazic, or, to give him his former name, Brodlevsky, was a frequent visitor. By a lucky accident, he had met on the day following the reception, our old friend, Sergei Antonovich Kavrov, the captain of the Golden Band. Their recognition was mutual, and after a more or less faithful recital of the events of the intervening years, they had entered into an offensive and defensive alliance. When Baroness von Doring was comfortably settled in her new quarters, Sergey Antonovich brought a visitor to Budlevsky. None other than the Hungarian nobleman, Count Nicholas Kalash. Gentlemen, you are strangers. Let me introduce you to each other, said Kavroff. Presenting Count Kalash to Podlewski. "'Very glad to know you,' answered the Hungarian Count, "'to Podlewski's astonishment, in Russian. "'Very glad, indeed. "'I have several times had the honour of hearing of you. "'Was it not you who had some trouble about forged notes in Paris?' "'Oh, no, you are mistaken, dear Count,' answered Podlewski, "'with a pleasant smile. "'The matter was not of the slightest importance.' The amount was a trifle, and I was unwilling even to appear in court. "'You preferred a little journey to Russia, didn't you?' Kovrov remarked with a smile. "'Little vexations of that kind may happen to anyone,' said Bodlevsky, ignoring Kovrov's interruption. "'You yourself, dear Count, had some trouble about some bonds, if I am not mistaken. You are mistaken.' The Count interrupted him sharply. "'I have had various troubles, but I prefer not to talk about them.' "'Gentlemen,' interrupted Kovroff, "'we did not come here to quarrel, but to talk business. "'Our good friend, Count Kalash,' he went on, turning to Bodlevski, "'wishes to have the pleasure of cooperating in our common undertaking, "'and I can recommend him very highly.' "'Ah,' said Bodlevski, after a searching study of the Count's face, "'I understand. "'The Baroness will return in a few minutes, "'and then we can discuss matters at our leisure.' But in spite of this understanding, it was evident that Budlevsky and Count Kalash had not impressed each other very favorably. This, however, did not prevent the concert of powers from working vigorously together. End of Section 18 Recording by Katie Riley January 2011